Welcome back to the program. So much of the way our brains and neurosystem is hardwired emerges as man did from the primordial stew of life. Clearly, modern science tells us we are more suited to be hunter-gatherers than we are at multitasking and purveyors of Google Glass. Yet, no matter how much some may desire it, we're not going back to a simpler time. Information will continue to pour in on us, multilateral demands on our time will increase, and to succeed at anything, work, play, or home, will have to adapt or perish. So the question becomes, do we try and shape this brave new world to the way we are, or do we move through it knowing we are at the ramparts of the effort to change human evolution? The answer is really both, and this is where my guest, esteemed neuroscientist Daniel J. Levitin, takes us in his new book, The Organized Mind. Daniel Levitin is the author of the number one bestseller, This Is Your Brain on Music. He's contributed to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Atlantic. He's currently the James McGill Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University and Dean of the Arts and Humanities at Minerva School at KGI. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Levitin here to talk about The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Great to have you here. In many ways, in thinking about how we interact with everything that's changing around us and the speed and technology, a little bit it's like the old story about trying to build a parachute after you've jumped. At the same time we're trying to understand it, we're constantly being bombarded with new information and new ways of even thinking about the brain and, and, and human evolution and how we process all of this information. We are, and uh, it's, it's really gotten to a, a point where you just can't keep up. I mean, it, it used to be maybe 20 years ago you felt like you could keep up, but now you can't. I mean, YouTube upload, there is 6,000 hours of YouTube videos uploaded every hour. So that means if you're watching an hour of YouTube, you're 5,999 <laughs> hours behind for every hour you watch. Uh, scientists have generated, by some estimates, more information in the last 20 years than in all of human history before that. So how do you keep up? Well, you don't. You have to come up with strategies for what you're going to pay attention to and what you're going to deal with and give yourself a pass, give yourself permission to let go of other stuff. And that really is two parts. One, acknowledging that you're not going to be able to keep up but also dealing with the stresses that come with always feeling that you're falling further and further behind. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, and so uh, there are a number of things we can do. In fact, some of them we do automatically. Uh, there, there's an interesting study that shows that couples, uh, people in an intimate relationship, uh, couples tend to take responsibility for remembering different things that the couple encounters. So, uh, and I say they do this automatically, implicitly, without any, without having spoken about it. So, tell me if this resonates with your experience. One member of the couple may deal with things related to uh, pets uh, and keeping track of the appointments for the dogs or cats or the feeding schedule or the walking schedule. Another member of the couple will keep track of uh, things that have to be done to the car. Somebody else keeps track of what has to be done around the house. Somebody else keeps track of the social calendar. Uh, I I don't mean there's all these somebody else's, but I mean one or the other in the couple. And so they're effectively doubling the memory capacity of each individual, right? Right. 
The, the other part of that, though, is that instead of one person being overloaded in, in that couple situation, you suddenly have two people that are overloaded with information and responsibilities, and you're actually doubling the amount of stress involved in the process, arguably. Well, I, couples don't report that. They report that they uh, they find great freedom in being able to rely on the other one. So, what was the name of that movie we saw last week, honey? <laughs> right. uh, or um, what is what is so and so's wife's name? You know, things like that. It's a great division of labor. Talk about the impact that all of this has had, and you spend time talking about this in the book. The impact that it's had on creativity, the fact that, that it takes all the running we can do to stay in the proverbial same place, and the effect that it has on being able to move forward creatively. Well, I, I'm glad you asked me that, Jeff, because creativity is something that um, has interested me in my, my, uh, my entire career, uh, the neuroscience of creativity. And um, people who are coming up with the most creative uh, works or the cr- most creative solutions to problems, and I mean in the arts or in business or in science or in any domain, uh, most creative solutions tend to occur during a special brain state that uh, neuroscientists call the default mode. They occur uh, when we're daydreaming effectively or when we're letting our minds wander. So you've probably had this experience. You're engaged in a task, you're, you're trying to solve some problem, you can't figure it out, and you just let it go. And you know, while you're doing something else, you might be grocery shopping, you might be driving, bam, the solution comes to you and there it is. And that's your daydreaming mode, the creative mode of the brain uh, pitching in and, and helping to solve problems. But f- for that to work, we need to give ourselves permission throughout the day to daydream. And we need to give ourselves permission to take naps to kind of hit the neural reset button in the brain. And in fact, what most of us are doing is just the opposite with respect to naps, for example, and that reset button. Most people are sleep-deprived nowadays. They are, and some of the world's biggest uh, accidents, I mean, I'm talking about in the world theater, the Exxon Valdez, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant incident, these have been traced to sleep deprivation. The the recent uh, Korean Airlines jet uh, that was had the uh, crash landing at San Francisco airport, uh, the evidence was that not only were the pilots not properly trained, but they were sleep deprived. And so um, we need, you know, we need to follow good. You've heard it before, but it's beginning to have a real impact. If you want to be creative, productive, and happy, you have to have good sleep hygiene. And naps are tremendously restorative. Uh, even a 10-minute power nap can really make a big difference uh, and, by some studies, increase your effective IQ by 10 points. What role, although it's it's incredibly gradual, but are we starting to see, as a result of modernity, even as a result of just where we've moved in the 20th and 21st century, that we are beginning to evolve, that our brain brains are beginning to adapt ever so slightly to the realities of modern life. I think some people are better at this than others. So um, some people uh, have managed to partition their lives and schedule their time so that they're not distracted. And I think these are the ones who are you know, emerging as the most successful leaders and the most successful 
uh, creators in our society. Um, they recognize the value of sustained attention and uh, of daydreaming and alternating between the two brain states rather than this this push that most of us feel towards multitasking, that we have to be doing six things at once and we have to function like that all day long from sunup to sundown. And the evidence, Jeff, is that you know multitasking just doesn't work. Talk a little bit about that, because even though we hear repeatedly that multitasking doesn't work, huge swaths of the population still try and engage in it. Talk a little about that, Daniel. Well, it really comes down to a myth, and and one of the things I le- I've learned as a neuroscientist is that uh, the human brain is very good at deceiving itself. Um, that uh, you know, we we think uh, we're very good at self delusion. We think we're being very effective when we multitask. In fact, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I think I look a lot better when I'm drunk. So, <laughs> the brain has ways of playing tricks on us, but there are studies that can help us separate our intuitions from reality. And the reality is based on dozens of carefully conducted experiments. We don't actually do several things at once. Instead, we rapidly shuffle among them, one after the other. So part of the illusion here is tied into how the brain's reward system works. Every time we accomplish some task, no matter how small... And every time we learn some new piece of information, such as from a social networking news feed, our brain doles out a little hit of dopamine, a chemical that makes us feel good. So doing all these little tasks in rapid succession make us feel good, but it's short-lived. At the end of the day, we haven't really accomplished much. We have much less to show for it than if we had been unitasking. And to what extent is organization and discipline a key part of success in this kind of environment? I think it's the critical factor. Um, I'll mention that people who are conscientious and organized have a number of positive um, benefits uh, from a statistical point of view. If you're conscientious and organized, those are the, the single most important factors that predict uh, life expectancy, overall health, and overall life satisfaction. Um, Now, when I talk about being organized, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about being a robot or an automaton or or sapping all the fun and spontaneity out of a day. Uh, It's it's paradoxical, but if, if you're more efficient and you can get more done in a shorter amount of time, uh, you actually have more time to be spontaneous and more time to enjoy the the intangible qualities of life, relationships, nature, uh, which in turn tend to be restorative. Um, a walk in nature, a short walk in nature, a short amount of time in a you know with a loved one, those can refuel the depleted energy we feel after a day of hard work. As more and more of the population moves to cities, to denser urban environments, what impact is that having in some of the areas that we've been talking about? Well, urban environments offer a lot of distractions, uh, that's for sure. Um, And people who live in urban environments, uh, What I've learned from interviewing a number of successful people, scientists, artists, writers, uh, business people, 
they make time for walks in nature. They make time, you know, in New York, you've got Central Park. San Francisco, we've got Golden Gate Park. Most urban centers that are well-designed have these little escapes. And they're not just tremendously restorative, but from a biological standpoint, you know, we, we evolved in nature, not in cities, over tens of thousands of years. The brain seems to have a kind of primitive yearning towards these environments, and they help us to recharge. Are we trying to gradually overturn some of these things that are hardwired into us, some of these things that, that go back to hunter-gatherer times? And, and, and are we seeing some resulting evolutionary change as a result of, of modernity? Well, we are. Uh, you know, there's this concept that you that's implicit, of course, in what you said, uh, Jeffrey, about uh, evolutionary lag. So um, the um, the idea is that it takes uh, it takes a while for our uh, evolution to catch up with modern conditions, and in that sense, our brains are uh, are configured to be most uh, uh, adapted to hunter-gatherer lifestyles, but there are small changes that occur. Some of these are passed down by culture and some by the genes. Reading is an example of something that's passed down culturally. Uh, we have, we've only been reading as a species for 5,000 years, not long enough for there to be dramatic changes in the brain uh, about how it handles written language. But we all learn to read, and you know, most of us do anyway, and uh, this is something that's passed down through cultural transmission. Um, it's it's too early to say what aspects of modern life have become encoded in the genome, but certainly there are some. We're probably adapting to smog, uh, to the electric light, to having you know that is to having uh, light stimulation available whenever we want it, and we're probably adapting to information overload in fits and in starts. And what do we see with the so-called digital natives, more specifically young people that, that are engaged in this world of multitasking, of rapid-fire information, rapid communication, literally from birth through w whatever age they might be now? What do we see in terms of the way they're developing and evolving? Well, there are pluses and minuses, of course. The digital generation is more facile with technology, and they're able to ad uh, adopt new technologies much quicker than people of my generation. Um, you know, in, in the old days, you know, I'm a boomer. When I grew up, the telephone basically stayed the same for my <laughs> entire childhood, except that at some point they replaced the dial with push buttons. Now, um, people change their cell phones every two or three years, some more often than that. There's often new technology, new menus, uh, new procedures, and the digital generation are accustomed to these kinds of rapid changes. Their brains work differently in this way. They can immediately acquire, well, not immediately, but much more quickly and effortlessly acquire uh, new ways of doing things in the digital domain. The cost of that, though, is that most people under 25 are not accustomed to putting in the same kind of sustained attention uh, over a long period of time that people say over 50 are. 
Now, I say most people under 25. Of course, there are exceptions. Uh, but there was a recent study. I don't know if you uh, covered it, but uh, it shows that for many people, doing something is better than doing nothing. When given a choice to do nothing for a few minutes and just be alone with their thoughts or receive a mild electric shock, the majority of men in the study and a third of the women preferred a mild electric shock to being alone with their thoughts. And you know, that's not something that, that people over 50 uh, are usually uh, experiencing. Coming back to, to the whole idea of organization and the way to, to put all of this information, all of this technology in its place, talk about how that applies to creativity because we, we've certainly seen over the years the kind of classic iconic image of, of the absent-minded person, the disorganized person who was also very creative. In fact, what we're finding out runs counter to that. I think there are uh, there's a wide range of experience here, and uh, you know people come in a lot of different sizes and shapes, and so do their brains, and people have different personalities that they bring to all this. So um, um, I'd say there, there are kind of two extremes here, and they're represented by Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. On the Joni Mitchell side, Joni is very deliberate about her songwriting and her creative acts, and she'll spend months editing even just one word, fussing over one word in a lyric. And uh, she's very, very organized in the way she does it. Neil Young, on the other hand, is much more spontaneous, in fact, completely spontaneous. He told me that if if he can't finish a song all at, in one sitting, if it's not done in 15 or 20 minutes, he's not interested in it, he moves on to the next. He doesn't try to, to repair it. And I think there's all kinds of experience in between. Uh, but what a number of successful creative people do in the arts and in business and in science and in other endeavors is they, they arrange their lives to make time and space for the creativity, right? They, they set aside a special place where they can work on it or a special time of day. A number of people devote a block of time uh, as creative time when they, they don't allow distractions. We see this increasingly in corporate America where they enforce these productivity hours, no phone calls, no email during a block of time. Talk about the impact that email is having. I mean, this comes up periodically in, in conversations, this idea that this need to check on email all the time is, is really having a profound effect on us. Yeah, and, and this gets to uh, the multitasking that we were talking about early, that multitasking doesn't really exist. Um, and to to do most things well requires, we now know enough about the neuroscience of it, it usually requires sustained attention for, say, 20 to 50 minutes uh, at a time. Uh, you can't really get into something for 30 seconds answer an email and get back to that thing for another 30 seconds, answer another email, and, and get anywhere and, and, and do quality work. So although there are some exceptions, uh, I would say uh, broadcast journalists, print journalists, publicists, people who need to be on email all the time um, you know, and need to be on social networks all the time to be catching breaking stories, uh, for the rest of us, it's probably not true. 
And one of the things that I discovered in interviewing a number of successful people and CEOs for the book is that the way they manage email is they set up special email accounts. So maybe there's a handful of people in your life that you really need to hear from right away. It could be your boss. It could be an underling, you know, somebody who works for you. Uh, it could be a colleague, collaborator, maybe your spouse, uh, your children, your parents. Maybe there's 10 or 12 people that you want to hear from right away. So you set up a special email account. You give that only to them, and you can leave that on all day long. But your main email account that everybody else has, somebody that is inviting you to a party that's three weeks away from now, somebody sending you a funny video of a cat playing the piano, uh, you know, a worker asking for, you know, somebody you work with asking for something that has a due date a month out, those kinds of emails you should check at a designated time, maybe you know once in the morning, once in the afternoon, uh, two, three times a day max. Don't leave it on all the time because that constant ping is distracting. Of course, that small list always tends to grow exponentially over time, and then you have to create a new account or something. You do, and Lawrence Lessig, uh, who's a law professor at mm -hmm. Harvard, he talks about declaring email bankruptcy because uh, he can't stay up with his inbox. So at some point, he just sends an automatic letter to his uh, respondent saying, I'm sorry, uh, I'm behind in my emails, I've thrown everything out. If there's still something you need, write back to me. And you know, along the same lines, yes, you're right. Uh, you, you know, we have to set up new private accounts every once in a while when they get too big. <laughs> and, and finally, I want to talk a little bit about how all of this affects the way we learn, both for young people and for adults as well, and what all of this has taught us and continues to teach us about the most effective ways to learn, to gather information. So I've been working as the Dean of Arts and Humanities at the Minerva Schools at KGI, a new university mm -hmm. uh, undergraduate program under the auspices of the Claremont Colleges. And this is exactly what we're focused on. We're trying to reinvent the university experience to use the science of learning uh, to educate, and that revolves around teaching critical thinking. We don't transmit information in the classroom. We exercise our university students in the art and the science of thinking critically, evaluating information, and employing these as a habit of mind um, so that they're automatic responses. And I think in general, this needs to trickle down to high school and elementary schools. It's no longer essential or even effective to try to teach a, a whole bunch of facts to students. Rather, we need to teach them to deal critically with those facts, and to use information productively and creatively to make the world a better place. Daniel J. Levitin, the book is The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. It's just out from Dutton. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 